Ooh, we talk about UPMs. We talk about trains and planes and filmings overseas. Helicopters. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Part 2. We don't talk much about Aliens uh, 4, because um, it was a really bad movie. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't even ask a single question about it. Yeah, I'm proud of you, You Brian. told us a little bit about it, and I was like, really? I almost, you needed a big water tank? Was there even a water sequence in that movie? No, I and wanted I to ask him out? whether well, that was Jean-Pierre Jeunet, right? No. It was either, fin- I think Fincher did three, Jean-Pierre Jeunet did four. Do you know? Fincher's a genius. Yeah, Jean-Pierre Jeunet is pretty good. He did The Professional. But my point was that the story was about a water tank or something, and I don't remember any water in that movie at all. Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic Cinematic community. Tell people not to swing the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good point. Right? You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. The art and craft of movie making, the stories that define it. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Community. We are Lewis Normandon and Brian Hart. Today we are excited to bring you the president of Botolato Media Group, Billy Botolato Jr. He owns a global film production and consulting company that specializes in international and domestic filming. They are experienced in aerial, marine, and underwater photography. They handle the planning, the budgeting, and the execution. What I'm telling you is no exaggeration, and I cannot speak highly enough about our guest's top-level performance. We just want to send out a big shout-out to all of our players involved in today's episode, Steve Hopkins, for always believing in our little podcast enough to let us use your personal studio to record almost every episode thus far, Zoe Lane for all the behind-the-scenes work you're doing, thank you, and to Greg Dunham for all of the audio post. Some of our recent episodes have been edited by Noah Cass, Michael Artris, and Gabriel Acosta. Thank you all for all of your hard work. Lastly, catch all of the new posts, tweets, photos, and events at www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. Check out Cinematic Community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google+. And now our guest, Billy Botolato Jr. heard that uh, looking at your resume that, that you were like off in, no no no, no that oh. you were like off in space somewhere doing some kind of like uh. space aeronautical <laughs> water photography and like a comet flew by but because you were wearing this specific space suit it only broke your arm instead right. of like taking it off completely right right I, I use some proprietary entertainment industry stuff and then all of a sudden I, I was shielded from everything you know left right and center excellent <laughs> next generation tech we like that yes Yes, yes. So we usually open up a little bit more chronologically, but sure. maybe we thought in this situation it'd be better to have you just kind of tell everybody who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, my name is uh, Billy Badalato, and I'm very fortunate to be a, a third-generation filmmaker. Uh, my father is a semi-retired producer, and my grandfather, Steve D'Anzillo, actually was one of the founding members of the very first motion picture union in the United States in the 20s, Local 001, the Projectionist Union in New York. And uh, he was a very celebrated individual and worked, I think he worked in the union for about 70 years. He retired at 90-something. So I was very, you know, the the few times I had a chance to speak with him uh, when I went to New York uh, for a big celebration that they had when he retired, you know, that was one of the things that really makes me the most proud of what I do is that I can carry on 
you know, uh, the generational approach of filmmaking, which, you know, changes every few years. And just like right now, how the, the model is changing with all the subsidies and with everybody, uh, you know, chasing after the cheapest place to shoot. Uh, the business that my, uh, my grandfather and my father were in is a very different business that we are all in today. Uh, so I feel very blessed that I, I had the opportunity to spend some time with the old guard uh, before moving in. Uh, I mentored under my father for about 15 years, the first part of my career. Uh, then I went on to, uh, you know, production supervise and production manage and line produce all the all the things that you guys uh, know about. But uh, but my passion is film, and really, what I enjoy is to create. Uh, different processes um, within production and producing to make things much more efficient and much more user-friendly for people. Because I think just as the business is changing economically, the business should be changing sociologically. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of the things that I've learned from the people I've worked with really lend itself to be a much more uh, people-centric business. I mean, production really is a service industry actual production office, the phrase production, that's really a service industry. And our job, whether you're producing or production managing or line producer, whatever it is you're doing, uh, is really to be the most efficient. And ultimately, our goal is to give the director as much shooting day as possible. And the, the only way you can accomplish that is for everybody on the team to be very efficient. And Consequently, it's on the management side of that team to uh, give out what they feel their expectations are so that all the crew can meet it. And it's a very basic management tool, but it is not used in this business. So I try to use it as much as I can because I always find, just like the adage, you know, a happy, a happy group of people working is much better than a grumpy work, uh, group of people working. Wow. Well, okay. Where do we start with about the Howie's third generation of filmmaking, projectionist, and and producing? Well, I, um, you know, I I was very fortunate enough that I started from the bottom. Uh, you know, I was a production assistant. Um, I've done basically every role in the office. Uh, you know, I've been a production secretary. I was an assistant coordinator. Um, I've been a PA for years and years and years. So I really understand the dynamic of what it takes for that group of people to get their work done. And then I was also very fortunate when I was younger. Um, this is before the unions sort of came down a little bit on departmental production assistants. But I was able to be a production assistant in the camera department. I, I worked in the transportation department. I was a grip and electric floor manager for a company called General Camera West back in the 80s. So I- we, we know uh, General Camera. Yeah, yes, General absolutely. Camera. Yeah, it's a great, they're a great group of people. And so I, you know, I feel really fortunate that I was able to kind of sample all the different departments um, because just like in business where there's a specific language, you know, there's a language of film uh, and then there's a language for the departments. And uh, just like there's a, a language for legal transactions and things like that. Uh, so I always felt it was important to really understand it from the crew's perspective uh, so that when you're in a position of management or if you're producing a picture, you sort of already know the uh, ability of the department and you know what you need to ask is either impossible or not. Um, and I find that just kind of knowing that and being able to relate to people on their work uh, really makes uh, uh, my job and the job of the other managers working with me much easier. Well, as a fellow uh, third-generation set brat, um, I'm curious, because I have nothing but fond memories of my father bringing me on set pre-working. Uh, do you have any 
uh, uh, fond memories of pre-working before. You know, uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, of being oh, on gosh. Set and, yeah, I mean, one one great memory is from uh, John. I wasn't a producer's kid, so that's a different story. You were right. probably in a different right. class. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the great thing about my father is that whether I was working, whether I was going to visit him to work or to visit, it was always made very clear to me that you start at the bottom. Um, and, you know, whenever I would express interest in saying, oh, well, that looks pretty neat, he goes, well, then, you know, you would start as that person's assistant and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, because my father came from, a, you know, from a very challenging work time in the 70s himself. So he passed that on to me, and I was really fortunate with that. But one of the stories uh, I remember was from Jaws 2, and that was in Pensacola, Florida. And I think we sh that was shot about 1976 or 7 or 75. Um, and there was this big uh, brouhaha about a problem with some of the special effects, some really big problem. And I just got wind of it. I don't know how old I was at the time. I was probably 10. Um, and I just sort of followed my father around. And, and what I learned was that the special effects technicians came in in the spring to measure the depth of the water in which the mechanical shark would be placed in. And they do the measurement to make sure that all of the armature and the underwater support for the shark would be covered under the waterline. A very basic concept. Um, so, however, uh, the big day when the semi-trucks came with the shark and the pontoons and the marine departments out there and the news was out there and they the entire day kind of ratcheting all the stuff in and it was a you know big success and the news went away and then somebody said but we see one foot of the armature above the waterline and you could hear a pin drop at that point and uh and then a lot of closed-door meetings and a lot of yelling and a lot of this, that, and the other. Uh, consequently, that original effects team went home, and they had to retool it uh, for the cost of $1 million, which back then is a, it's a big amount of money today, obviously. But back then in the 70s, when you're working on a budget that can't be much over 15, uh, that's a huge chunk of the budget. So what ended up happening was the effects guys did not, and you probably can guess that out there, whoever's listening, did not do a tide check on the sound, which is the body of water between uh, the shore and the island of Pensacola or the sandbar of Pensacola. So unfortunately, they did not do any tide projection. So when they put everything in, it was winter. And of course, the armature stuck out. And uh, that, that was one of those things. You know, uh, from that point, I'm extrapolating a few things. One, wow, I'm glad I'm not getting yelled at. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and two, huh, you've really got to do a lot of research when you plan something. And, that, and, you know, at that age, that's all I thought. I was like, wow, that's too bad for those guys. Oh, well. Uh, but as, as I got older, I realized, wow, what a problem that was and how easy it could have been to fix it. Um, and, and, you know, that's one of those kind of learning stories that I, I really enjoyed. And I, and I remember that and there's other stories from, from that, uh, you know, I was able to meet the cast and, and all that, but that's, that's really an interesting story, uh, before I actually started to work. Um, they must not have learned any lessons from the first movie where exactly, everyone had a nervous yeah. breakdown well, about being near the water. Yeah, that's exactly right. And certainly the people of Waterworld didn't listen to that lesson because as we all know, they put the atoll on the side of the island that got the most weather. 
Right. Is I don't that, know if that, that. I don't know if that, that. Yeah. I. I uh, they originally installed the atoll on one side of the island that ended up getting a very bad weather pattern in the spring. And this is one of those things where this goes to the lesson of always talk to the locals. So the the group went and they uh, DP and the design. Everyone chose the the perfect spot. And as they were kind of mapping it out, there was this kind of older local guy saying, "Hey, you know, in the summer that gets really bad weather." And everyone was like, "Yeah, okay, whatever, old timer." And so of course they put it up and it got trashed apart and they have to then rebuild it of course underworld is universally known in the film business as being one of Waterworld, Waterworld, yeah. yeah. It's universally known in the film business as being one of the most unnecessarily expensive movies of its time. It, it is, and funny enough, I saw it on cable two days ago when I was just kind of working in my office. And I can And I can completely <laughs> agree with that assessment. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so, you know, all of these things I find um, really helps with becoming a better filmmaker. And that's one of the things I wanted to share with everybody is that, you know, you want to try and learn something new every day. And it's sort of a silly adage, but to me what happens is that you start off on your path as a filmmaker with a very small handheld toolbox. And then every show that you do, in no matter what capacity, if you're a grip, electrician, you're, you're a line producer or whatever, you need to gleam something off of whatever you're working on for next time. And I like to call that a wrench. So every show you get a wrench and you kind of throw it in your toolbox. And the purpose of that is when you're in a job interview or you're having a discussion with a potential employer, you and you're, uh, let's say you're talking about uh, space or uh, better yet, say you're talking about doing a stunt underwater. And on the last show you worked on, you were a production assistant, but hey, they had a, sh a stunt underwater and you were smart enough to pay attention to that and to ask questions. And that's now a wrench in your toolbox so that you can then take that wrench out and hold it in your hand and say, well, I do actually have a little experience with this. Um, and you explain your experience. That alone gives you a much added value to whoever you're talking to because you actually know something that they're going to be doing over another person who just has a resume and call to try and get a job. Yeah. So I find that the more wrenches you're able to put in your toolbox, the much better you are as you proceed. Now, the, some of us older guys, it's more like a craftsman truck following us. But for the younger guys, the younger people that I counsel, it's really important that you, you, you really ask questions. When you're working on a film, ask questions, and people will answer them. And the more knowledge you can gleam off of people, the more wrenches you have, the better you're prepared for the next interview. Because your first day on your first job is your actual second job interview. Because I've seen people being fired as a production assistant on their first day of work on a set because they've messed up. And I've seen people being dismissed after a few days in the production office because they don't have the right attitude and messed up. The first day you show up for work is your second job interview. And I can't stress that enough. And if you impress people on that first day, uh, you know, if you, if you want to be outstanding, then you need to stand out. And in order to stand out, you've got to be aggressive and get your work done. So let's branch that into some of your production consulting and supervising that you do mm -hmm. now. Yeah. How? Okay. I guess maybe the, my first question would be: What's the difference between production management, you know, producing right. and production consulting? Well, but it's, it's a very good question. Uh, production consulting is a service that that my company, Bottle Auto Media Group, offers, and I offer. Um, and we are sort of the the people in the background to help guide a production towards success. So if you um, have a script and you have some money and you really don't know what to do, 
or you're not really sure how to like make step one, uh, we can do that for you. If you want to say, here's our script, here's our money, go make the movie yourself, that's not so much consulting, and that's more like becoming one of the producers or people on the film. So um, I, I have this ser- we have this service for uh, independent filmmakers and uh, especially student filmmakers or people making shorts. I'm consulting on two projects, very you know micro budget. We're talking five to ten thousand dollar range, um, and they need help just sort of with producing of the film. So I consult with them uh, and try to get their stuff going. Uh, accordingly, the consulting work also goes into the feature aspects of dealing with aerial and marine and specialty photography um, and also dealing with other countries because if you're a film and you need to film out of the country and you don't really have anyone on your team or your studio is very familiar with that, you need someone in your corner to kind of tell you the do's and don'ts of just the basic of showing up and filming somewhere. Um, and with uh, all the experience that I've got uh, you know, filming overseas, it's, it, it's very very easy. It's a bit of a flow chart of what you have to do to film overseas. So um, I get asked to consult on all of those types of things. Um, and like I said, uh, the most recent thing I did um, was working for the second Crouching Tiger, which is being filmed in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, and my colleague, uh, the producer Ralph Winter, called me up and uh, said that they were filming in China uh, and he needed a little assistance uh, with the production service company and some of the logistics. So I was engaged by them and and uh, worked for them for a few months and uh, kind of got that stuff set up. And that was the extent of my involvement. So consulting um, or working, either either one. Your family is pretty well known for what you do. The first time I ever met a bottle auto, it was Chet. Oh, gosh. Uh, my uncle Chet, yes. He um, he is a cast driver, more, more like a personal handler of, of cast. And he spent... Uh, I think about 17 years working for Jack Nicholson. Uh, when Jack Nicholson slowed down, uh, he is now working for Sean Penn. Which is why it would explain him working with Art Linson on Into the Wild, which is where oh, I met I, him. Oh, absolutely. That's a, great, that's a great film. I was a grip on that one. Oh, was that right? Yeah, yeah. it was my last job ever then, as a grip. Then, yes, you would. Chet had a lot of stories of, of all the fabulous locations up there. And, uh, you know, he's in the film business. Uh, my cousin was in the film business for a while. He was one of the second seconds on Titanic. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of us hidden bottle autos, you know, sort of like stealth ninjas in the business. So, <laughs> which is kind of fun. So specifically for going back to international for a second, beyond the obvious language barrier or different uh, currency, uh, is the, does the, the logistics usually get down to uh, like transportation? Is it a permitting it's, kind it, of thing? Yeah, it's, cars? That's, that's, that's your run the exact right path. It, it's a combination of all of those. I mean, uh, you know, just to keep this sort of short, what, what it is is that in order to film overseas, you have to engage a PSC, which is called a production service company, um, because they are the in-country established organization that reports to the government about your spend and how much money's coming in the country and how to get the money out of the country. And they are the ones that help you set up the crew and the locations and things like that. So an even smarter local film commission. Right. It's like a film commission, but these are actual like well-known companies all over the globe that, uh, that you would call and say, I have a script. This is this, you know, help me. 
And, um, you know, just like car dealerships, there are certain ones in certain countries that you don't want to go to, and then there's others that you do want to go to. And uh, and a lot of that, uh, some of that is known, but a lot of it isn't. So part of the benefit of working with me is that I can kind of sort of steer you away from the used car salesman mm. group of the production gotcha. service companies and, and at least advise you on what they should be telling you. Uh, so in consulting jobs, a lot of time I get copied on all the inter, uh, emails and things like that. That allows me to sort of take an overview of like how the production service company is handling my client, and then I'm able to sort of weigh in and say, well, don't forget to ask about X, Y, and Z. So the experience factor is coming from not just, hey, we haven't filled out this form, but hey, why are you paying three times more for that than that, you're supposed that, to? That, that's exactly right. right. And, and and actually, funny enough, it, it's not about why you're paying someone off, it's paying off the right person. Because a lot of times what happens is someone will get in and rep represent themselves as the end-all, be-all, and, oh, I can get that permit and we'll clear this. And you end up paying them and they disappear. So, you know, that that happens a lot. It mm -hmm. happens a lot more in uh, China and Southern Asia than it does, obviously, in the more established places, like if you're filming in Prague or Germany or any of the, you know, Romania, Bulgaria. Uh, but even there, you have to be very, it's buyer beware. Um, because if you have enough money to go overseas, the production service company knows you have enough money to steal from. So give us the inside skinny. You know, a producer, an EP comes to you and says, I have $150 million. We're doing this great thing. What's the cheapest place on the planet we can go to? Is that how the conversation goes every time? It kind of, yeah. It's funny that you say that because we do sort of... Uh, the look on Brian's no, face when you, you know, say it's that. true. I mean, it, no, no. And, and it's, a, it's a combination Which of... We're not shooting anything here in LA anymore. Well, that's so. right. It, it, you know, I, I often define, you know, for about seven years... Uh, I worked in uh, what they call the area standards area, which is basically anywhere outside of California and New York and Miami and Chicago. The old area standards. The agreement. old area standards, and of course, Atlanta is you know hugely popular for the film market. You know, Hunger Games is tentpoled there. You know, the Fast and Furious franchise was there before. Fifteen TV shows, right? Walking Fifteen Dead. TV shows, Walking Dead. You know, Greg Nicotero, who's a good friend of mine, is down there in the Walking Dead, um, and so they typically say. If they want to be in America, they would say, where is the cheapest place in America? And then what I would do is I would read the script and look at the locations because certain places um, are better than others. If, you're, if your uh, script requires a, a city skyline and a lot of urban activity, I would probably you know, think about Wilmington, but Wilmington does not have that, whereas Atlanta does. Hadn't so Wilmington already kind of come and gone anyway and like in their peak of production? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was just sort of speaking out of turn before, of course, the, you know what what has occurred recently with the film subsidies but we we could take another comparison of New Orleans and Atlanta so you know depending on the architecture and what the script content is that would then give me you know two ideas of where I think we would film I would share that to the company and then you know do budget projections accordingly if they ask where in the world we have to go to be the cheapest um, again that also depends on the content of the script and what you're thinking of the exteriors but yes then we would you know start talking talking about uh, different subsidies. Um, you're able, you know, the UK has a, the, what's called the sales leaseback subsidy. You can do a co-production with them in Canada, depending on how much work or visual effects work you get done in Canada and how much you spend in either place, you get a larger rebate. So there's, there, it, it is- Australia it, seems to be the flavor of the decade. Australia is is pretty hot. Um, you know, Fox got their stuff going 
there many many years ago with Moulin Rouge, and they you know they got their their sets and things up, and of course all the you know between them and New Zealand, Lord of the Rings. Uh, yes, it, it's very hot. They have a great crew base. They offer a solid incentive, um, and again, a lot of it is the content of the script. Uh, and there's certainly places out there that would you know that you can kind of t- you can say, oh, here's your material. This place looks good. Let's let's do a budget for this. Well, place. well let me ask this: Where in the discussion? Because I know it has to come into your mind. When does crew availability become a serious problem? Oh, like, oh, well, we want to shoot in Bozeman, Montana. Well, that's great, but there's no local crew in it, Bozeman. Exactly. No, that's a very smart question. That's exactly correct. And what um, uh, there are several criteria that come up immediately in the discussion of where. Okay. Uh, and quite honestly, crew base is usually the first or second question. Really? To me, because I can't, um, I can't budget or project anything until I ask. You know how many bodies you got to bring. There you go. Yeah, and because uh, you don't get tax incentives or any of that fun stuff, well, you, if you have you, to hire out. Well, you, you can pay them local. You, well, you no, you, you you can get tax incentives on foreign crew, meeting crew outside the state. However, they're 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 a little less in the percentage scale, but that really doesn't mean anything. The killer is the hotel and per diem and the costs, um, and also the people you bring in inherently have different rates than the locals. So the very first question question, quite honestly, is I say, well, where's the crew? You know, I, if I don't come up with the where and someone says, we'd like to shoot somewhere, my very first question is crew, actually. Because that's uh, what you were talking about before. Anybody who's not living in the Los Angeles area is going to work under the Area Standards Agreement, which is generally about $10 less per hour-ish. Maybe it's a little different now it, it, well, as opposed to a Hollywood contract. It, it, well, yeah, it, it works a little differently, actually. If, if you import someone that works from Hollywood, uh, you take their guild and uh, you, you basically take their union status and it travels with them. So you bring a Los Angeles person anywhere, they're going to be paid at least minimum L.A. contract. Uh, same with New York, M- at least minimum. And it's usually a lot more, obviously, because scale is not really scale anymore. It's just some sort of number. Everyone likes to negotiate around, which is totally fine and understood. Um, so, uh, yes, the crew location is actually the first thing. Um, and it's the traveling of everybody in and out that will usually tell me right away um, you know, whether it's good or not. However, once I report that to the company and the company says, well, that's okay. Why don't, you, why don't we get a budget going for that? I'm fine. I just give him the number. You're basically confirming my theory that I can't blame the incentives for all work leaving here. I'm going to blame the crew that moved to New Orleans and Atlanta because, I mean, if it were up to me, everything would be shot in Burbank and Queens. And since I can't get that, <laughs> that's funny. It's it's definitely the fault of of the crew that has decided to live in a terrible city like New Orleans. Well, I, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the the subsidies and the and there's a lot of reasons why the industry is the way it is. Um, I mean, you know, we could start talking about uh, the very first flight of film when they used to call it runaway production. That was, of course, referenced in the '80s. The very first television show that monopolized on that was X Files when they went to Canada. You know, that was the very first thing that started the migration. Um, and yes, you have had a lot of LA-based people move to either Atlanta, Wil- well, used to be Wilmington, and the New Orleans area. Um, and it's basically the same thing as what happened in Canada. You bring in some extra crew into some place. The crew base learns from them. Eventually, you don't need to bring in as many people. And just like a new film school moves in, right? And uh, a new film school moves <laughs> in. Somebody correct. calls me to give a seminar, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> I, uh, you know, you ha- you have a whole crew base there. Um, and it's exactly what happened to Canada. Canada and Canada was very smart because as we trained their crew, uh, they reduced the amount of U.S. people that could go there, and they kind of created. We we started their film business, uh, right or wrong, um, and the same 
sort of thing is happening uh, in the area standards part of the of the U.S. But no, you can't quite blame the incentives on everything. But here's something to think about. That well, I'll, partially your fault too. Well, we're gonna- <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, you can point the finger. You know what? I've, I've been blamed for worse things. Um, so w- one of the things, though, is is always an interesting theory that maybe I'd like to get your guys' opinion on. So just for a second, let's say the incentives in California and Atlanta are the same. Right, which we'll just say, and which they almost kind of are now that they've. I think they boost the California incentives to three hundred and three hundred million dollars. Got rid of the lottery system, right? Three hundred million got rid of the lottery system. Yeah, but aren't the shows that we're already shooting here so, soak all that up? It's not like new shows get that. This no, is the problem they did in New York, where they did a bunch of money, but then like the Law and Orders and everything that already shot there soaked up all the money immediately. My, well, my understanding is uh, they got rid of the lottery, and now the the people who are supposed to get the incentives have to fill out a document indicating how many local jobs that they are going to be providing as a reason for the subsidy. And if they're off by 20%, I think they get a monetary penalty or something like that. I don't know much more about it than that. Plus, they also have to create some kind of like State of the Union address for whatever place that they're going into right. to they see have how to they're annou- going to affect the they local have, places. It, yeah, very smart. They have to announce their presence. I mean, I do this as a matter of course when I come into a town anyway. But yes, you have a little town meeting and you know you kind of explain what you're doing and how many people you think you'll need. But just for a second, let's just say that you know it's apples and apples with incentives with Atlanta and L.A. What is the one different thing for a crew? Their rate. Okay, so, yes. And massively superior crews in Los Angeles as well, opposed to Atlanta. Well, let, let, let's, just, let, let's just keep it e- equal for just, just for the purposes of discussion. You have, t- you have two, key, let's say you have two key grips, right? You've got a key, key grip with great experience here in LA, and you've got a key grip with a good enough experience in Atlanta. The incentives are both the same. The problem is the rates are not. The union rates in LA are... I don't know, 30 to 40% higher than area standards. The same with New York and the other production centers in the United States. So just apples to apples, it's still more expensive to film here. And the only resolution to that, which is a non-starter, is to get the unions to negotiate either lower rates for people in California, which of course is never going to happen, or to up the area standards rates, which of course is never going to happen. So while I appreciate all the work that people are doing on the incentives, if you look at it from a purely mathematical standpoint, it's still just more expensive to film here. How, and that may be true, but how does the whole point of the infrastructure already being established here. Oh, it's a great point. No, no, I'm not, and I'm certainly not dismissing the the expertise of the crew base in LA. I have uh, dozens of friends that are grips and electrics and sound mixers. I mean, I, you know, my whole life was here in Los Angeles up until, uh, you know, when everyone started to sort of like chase the migrant subsidy out there in the, in the, in the, in the hinterlands. Um, so no, you, you certainly cannot compare the quality, the infrastructure, the backup of Los Angeles list anywhere in the world, let alone anywhere in the United States. I mean, it's, it's simply, you, you can't beat it. Unfortunately, uh, the bean counters that I report to and the studios that I work with uh, look at it much more from a mathematical standpoint. This is one of those things where as soon as there was a cheaper alternative... The, it was it was out of the bag. You never you're never going to be able to get it back in the bag. I know, and and you know it's funny. Uh, a, a producer that I worked with, um, uh, I suppose I sh- can say the name, but there, the, her opinion was, you know, get the map out, throw the dart at the cheapest place to go, and that's where we're doing everything. I don't care what the script says, and that model has worked. 
you know, to some extent. Um, but I believe that, and also I want to be very clear, I am very happy that the Californians have upped the incentives. I am very happy for all of this. I'm just looking at it from a numbers point of view because I get asked this all the time. And, you know, when you put it all on paper, it just doesn't equal out. However, it's equaling out more. And I think that that's the point. I think that Los Angeles and California and Hollywood in general is on the right track with these incentives. And I think that down the road, we will come up with a little more creative ideas to get more of the business back. So I'm very hopeful about it. Um, I, I, I'm just, it's just disappointing once you kind of realize where that, that mathematical equation leads you. Um, hmm? uh, so yeah, I wanted to get in a little bit to, so you talked about you're a PA Shows like Love at First Bite and Nighthawks and A Man with Two Brains. Oh, yeah. Um, a Personal Assistant on Top Gun. That, that's uh, yeah, a that, great movie. I, yeah. Um, Top Gun, that was a very amazing experience. I'm assuming Personal Assistant is, for our audience, uh, will equate it to a PA for one person. That's kind of right. You you are assigned. That that's a very a good way to put it. I, I am a PA. I was a PA for Don Simpson, uh, and as Who's probably he, one of the EPs. On it. Right. He well. He and Jerry Bruckheimer were the two producers They're of the, the film, producer. and uh, they were the team that brought us uh, Days of Thunder. You know the the Flash Dance. The, these two producers were like the it producers in Paramount in the eighties. They had matching Ferraris parked right outside the parking lot. I mean, they went to town with the perk package. And, uh, and of course, we know Jerry Bruckheimer as, you know, a, a kingmaker of, of features and television. Um, so obviously, they had some good ideas going. But, but my job uh, was for Don Simpson. And, and also, I, I had more than one job. I worked for Don. The other, the other two jobs I did was is I was in charge of setting up Tom Cruise's security and arrangements uh, for the San Diego part of the filming, which which meant that I dealt getting his rental house. I hired his bodyguard. I accompanied him a lot when they went out at night just to sort of keep tabs on everybody. And, you know, there's some interesting stories to go with that. Uh, and then working for he Don. Had, he had done, like, risky business before that. Right. He wasn't to what he is today. No, no right, but. right. No, Tom, Tom had finished risky business, um, and he was really, like, on the way up with a rocket booster. He was in booster. that Brat Pack. He was really up and coming. And, you know, on that film, you know, there was Tom and Val Kilmer and Anthony Edwards and, and a host of other great people. And uh, my job for Don was basically being a producer's assistant. It was handling his calls. A lot of it I dealt with the cast, uh, dealing with his uh, company, his and Jerry's company back in Los Angeles. Um, I would go to take the Ferrari to get washed. I was going to ask you, did you get to and, drive the Ferrari? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was very fortunate enough to take that bad boy for a little ride now and then. Excellent. Um, but yeah, I was basic. I took care of Don's business down there and uh, and then did uh, work for the film itself by dealing with Tom Cruise. I was also a set production assistant on the days that Don didn't need anything and, uh, and Tom was fine and things like that. But it, that... That was an incredible show. I, I, I think I had just graduated high school when I did that, and uh, it was it was amazing. I, 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 there's not enough words to, to 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 share what an, a magical, fabulous experience it was dealing with the Navy, going on the aircraft carrier. Just oh, you got to go on the Ranger. Yeah, I was able to go on the Ranger. We shot on the Ranger for I think it was six days, um, and I was one of the camera PAs that you know helped lug the gear. Oh, I, you know, I won the lottery, um, and we went out there and we were there for a week and. Uh, you know, did all that famous photography off the deck and things like that. And, you know, I, I, you know, of course, since my father was the EP on it and the production manager, I was able to do more things than a normal production assistant. But I, um, I always really respected the 
position that the departments were in. And I, I really tried to, you know, be helpful, you know, I, I, as opposed to just sort of like standing there going, yeah, you know, wow, this is really cool. I really tried to learn something and work and, uh, and I, and that I got from my father and that's, a, you know, just something I'm very happy that is a uh, way that I am. I remember reading an article that pretty much if you ever see an aircraft carrier in a movie, it's always the Ranger. They, yeah. they, they'll they redress it as whatever the script may need. Right. But that's the one that the Navy always it says. It is because it's sort of, it's, it's a semi decommissioned, you know, it's an older nuclear class aircraft carrier. As a, you know, and it's, it, to us at the time, it was like walking on a skyscraper. You know, it's yeah. just so huge. Now, today's nuclear carriers dwarf that. Um, but, you know, at the time, it, you know, it's like the biggest thing ever. Uh, but yeah, they always, for some reason, they do use the Ranger a Have lot. Have you been on any others since then for other um, shows? I. No, actually, I think I was on the USS Enterprise um, for Flight of the Intruder, maybe, or one of those aircraft films that I was taught. Hot Shots, maybe? Yeah, Hot Shots, yeah. Actually, the, the thing with the Hot Shots movies is that because we made fun of the government, we did not receive any official DOD support. So we, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, Flight of the Intruder, much better movie. Yeah, right, but. yeah, <laughs> well, for, the, for, for the Navy. So uh, actually, interestingly enough, on Hot Shots, uh, the job we had to actually create an aggressor air force and an oppo- you know and a, and a friendly air force, which meant we had to go out and rent private jets that all sort of looked the same, um, and then we mocked up the aircraft carrier flight deck at the Mojave Civilian Flight Test Center Airport up in Mojave. We used one of their runways to do that, mm-hmm. and then uh, we went to Palos Verdes, where now I think the new golf course is or some huge mm-hmm. some huge hotel property. Uh, that is back when Marineland was still in existence for any of the listeners here that are older than 12 years old. Uh, Marineland used to be down there, and uh, we made a deal with them and basically built a wooden platform to emulate the aircraft carrier deck and using force perspective in the camera and some model planes, uh, it looked just like the the deck of an aircraft carrier. And somehow you still uh, had to drop a bomb on Saddam? Well, that was always fun. That, that yeah. was, that was mean, the that, one shot from who that. Who knew how prolific that would be moving into the last few years of everything going on? Way ahead of its curve. Yeah, way ahead of its curve. No, we, we had a lot of fun on the movie. And, and actually, one of my favorite stories is from the second Hot Shots. And this is where, um, where we're mocking up uh, Apocalypse Now, uh, the famous scene where Martin Sheen is on the boat and you hear his voiceover saying, oh, I didn't know it was going to be this deep, et cetera, et cetera. And you see him on the PT boat and you hear the narration over. Well, in the Hot Shots movie, we we got two of those boats. We found some, we mocked them up. We had we did Martin Sheen on one boat and Charlie Sheen on the other, and we intercut Charlie Sheen, Sheen saying the same dialogue as Martin Sheen. And 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 a, a wide shot shows both of the boats actually going to cross each other, and they stand up, and of course they deliver their famous line, "Oh, I loved you in Wall Street," and uh, and the boats <laughs> keep moving. <laughs> and uh, and the thing was is that they I think we shot that like seven times because they would stand up and just laugh. They blew the take every time because it was just so funny. You know, either Charlie was laughing or Martin could can, can get the line up or whatever it was. And I think we had to reset those boats, which took like 40 minutes to get them around the canals. I think we shot that seven times, but it, it was really the most fun. And, you know, what a real treat it was to see father and son you know, Charlie and Martin doing their thing. And, you know, they, they kind of got a kick out of my father and I doing our thing. And it was really kind of a fun special moment. But, boy, that was a really but funny But a pain thing. in the ass for the call sheet. Yeah, the drag for the, the AD was uh, not happy. The AD I, I hear was there's only not. two things producers really care about. Is it in focus and did we make our day? 
You know, I suppose, and when I become one of those producers, I'll be able to say that. But uh, at the moment, my my byline is is basically where are we in the day, and and how can we get there? Sure. Uh, but yes, the the yeah, where is the film? Did we get the footage? You know, there's some horrific accident, and then some producer meekly says, "Well, did we get the footage?" Uh, <laughs> and you know, that's that's not unfortunately knocking on wood. I don't have those issues, so. Well, back to Top Gun for a second. I imagine one of the big logistical parts for the aerial stuff is that most of these planes can only fly like 20 minutes before they have to be refueled, especially if they're maneuvering at all. Right, right. They, that, yeah, I think people have this perception that these planes can fly for hours and hours, <clears> but they, like an F-14 goes like 15 minutes if it's doing any kind of maneuvering. Yeah, they, that's, a, that's a good point. They have a, very, um, <clears throat> they have a very limited time on their sortie. And so what we would do is in the morning, uh, you know, it would be Tony Scott and the rest of the team and the aerial people. We'd sit in a hangar and basically map out the shot. Okay, shot number one, the camera position is going to be over here. We're going to have the two aircraft pass overhead at this particular time. Uh, then they go refuel, then they come back. So we embedded in the aerial in the aerial day schedule uh, the refueling times and the transport times back from the airport to the, to the active area and things like that. But yeah, that's something to consider. And a lot of that goes with logistics and planning, which is so part of the consulting service that I that I provide because a lot of people go, oh, we'll just get an aerial shot of X, Y, and Z, and there's a lot more to it than that. Um, it's not rocket science, but the problem is is that if you don't... Technically, isn't it's rocket, rocket science? Rocket. All right, it is. All right, yes, it is a little good for you. Yes, it is a little rocket science since we are using rockets, but that was a good one. But, uh, but for us, it's really... Um, you can waste a lot of money the first time you do it if you don't know what you're doing, and of course, is it all fuel costs? Well, fuel—it's fuel, fuel costs. When well, you no, when you when you have a uh, the the reciprocal agreement with the Department of Defense is that you have to pay for all the the hard expendable costs like fuel, right? So our job is to pay for fuel. The pilots. They're already paid by the government. So we use the pilots when they are technically off or in their off hours. And they or, love to change a pace. Oh, they love course. to be oh, in no. the film. I mean, there's a line of people that want to do movie work in any of the armed services just because it's not like doing their everyday job. So what happens is, is that we have, a through the many meetings with the Department of Defense, we kind of come up with a calendar saying, well, we need pilots to do this or boats to do this. And then they come back and say, okay, well, we've got this many people that we can assign to you. Um, you're... Uh, responsibility for paying their overtime. So we pay labor, but we don't pay for their normal labor because they're already being paid by the government. We pay for the, the, the soft cost, or I should say the consumable cost of the fuel um, and any other type of expendables that we use. It basically comes down, like everything, to fuel and crew costs. And, uh, and when the Department of Defense is behind a movie, you, you, get, you get a lot of cooperation. They're really, really great to work with. So we've talked about the logistical side of everything so far. You've gone way deep into that, and that's exactly what we want. But I want to change gears for just a second and talk about the scientific part of what you do. I mean, because we are also talking about managing dive tanks. I know right. it's, you know, aerial photography, right. uh, aerial units. Right. You know, also, train, landing rockets, any of this fun stuff. stuff. We mentioned earlier about the tides coming in and out. Yeah. You know, you got to be able to foresee these types of things. Right. How scientific does your job get? Well, that's, you know, it's interesting. I haven't quite thought of it like that. Um, but I suppose that with all photography that has action elements, whether it's a stunt vehicle or a stunt guy, there is a bit of math and scientific work that has to go with it because you have to understand the variables of the equipment and the and the people that you're working with. And the environment. And, yes, and, of course, the environment. Um, and that has to do with, you know, aerial photography as an example. Um 
you know, a helicopter can only go so high before it cannot go any higher because the air is thin. And what that does is it it, it creates less oxygen for the motor and the motor heats up and overheats and you have to land the helicopter. And that also is is varying at different heights for different temperatures because it has more bite for more heat. That's exactly right. Different altitudes have different air uh, and weather patterns depending if you're near a hill or not near a hill. So um, one of the things that got me started in all this, I can't remember which movie it was, was one of my early ones is we were doing some boat work and I, uh, I, I usually worked, I was a location manager for several years. And of course, when you're a location manager, every aerial marine anything becomes your, your wheelhouse because you've got to get a permit for it and deal with the neighbors for it and all that. So um, over, I think, a period of two or three films doing aerial and marine work, um, I sort of buddied up to the coordinators, you know, being the location manager and asked a lot of questions and, and really decided that I wanted to learn about all that. And yeah, there is a lot of scientific stuff that goes with with it and a lot of it is sort of par for the course when you're making these sort of general decisions and talking points so it's there but it's in the background and what we try to provide or what I like to do when I work on a film is sort of bring all that expertise to bear for any single discussion we have on anything um, you know again it's the tool 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 wrench system so uh, but yeah there's a lot of scientific uh, work that goes with that uh, you know for diving for instance you've got to be you know you've got to have a dive whiteboard indicating how long people have been underwater you know there's rules as, you know the scuba association puts out rules for the maximum exposure absolutely um, nitrogen you know, build up. right there's all, all of those things that pilots and uh, you know divers and operators do um, par- part of my job is it, it, to know the periphery of it and at least to know what questions to ask. Um, you know, they always say, you know, a producer doesn't have to know anything, but they're able to get someone on the phone who does. And that's sort of the role that as a consultant, uh, you know, that I end up doing. You're a producer. Produce me some results. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Produce me some results. Uh, sure. <laughs> okay. Show me the script. So I saw Lewis, you added a question here about the, the day-to-day risks involved um, with shooting a film like Top Gun. I remember that at least one, I think a chase pilot died during the show. Yeah, an aerial pilot, Art Scholl, uh, passed away um, over, I think it was right over Santa Monica or Malibu. He was doing some aerial photography, uh, he was doing from air to water photography to kind of get the water racing by and glimmering so that we could put it in. I'm not exactly sure what the catastrophic malfunction was with the aircraft. I think it might have been something like fuel or, or something very basic and and not, uh, not something one would check on a flight list or something. I think there was actual malfunction function. He passed away. Um, and, you know, that's a very hard, hard thing. You know, it's a very hard, it's a tragic accident. You know, I, I don't really remember the legal specifics of what happened or, or, or any of that. But what I do know is that, you know, from that experience, hopefully, and which I believe it did, the industry got smarter. And I think that although you cannot have this industry without tragic accidents, unfortunately, um, I do believe that they can the the risk can be greatly minimalized um, every time there is an incident because you always should be able to take a step back and go why. Uh, and I think that's especially true with uh, the unfortunate train accident in Savannah this spring. Uh, you know, to me, it's a complete failure of management is what caused that. I think that's pretty apparent from all the reports, and we did a podcast on it. Brian broke it down 
very specifically. Yeah. And it pretty much pointed out, and that's why they're facing charges now yeah, that's, and being that's indicted. Right. So. Yeah, and, and it's just, it's so surprising to me, uh, you know, because uh, I'm like every other filmmaker. I, you know, I take chances and risks and, you know, it's, it's just your job. However, um, you know, when it comes to safety, there is, there should be, and and for a lot of us, there is no compromise. And, uh, and you know, from her death, uh, you know, the industry got smarter. And hopefully, uh, you know, we continue to kind of risk-proof our, our work because there really is no reason for people to get hurt. It is just a movie. And really, the problem you have is time. Everyone's always rushed. Everyone's always under the gun. Everyone always needs results. And while that's the normal model of filmmaking, which is acceptable, um, it's not acceptable if you, if you uh, pierce the veil of safety with that attitude. But you do find that there's some stuff is getting a second look and a third look because of Oh, absolutely. Incident. Oh, absolutely. A I lot mean, more discussion, which is always a good thing. Right. No, Let's no. ask questions. Let's have a conversation exactly. about it. Exactly. There's, there's, you know, that's why we have safety meetings. That's why we have production meetings. That's why we do a lot of the things we do. But again, uh, if the people in management don't feel that that's a priority, then it becomes a failure of management, and then you have the unfortunate incident in Savannah. And then, of course, there's been a couple of other accidents since then. Uh, did you hear about the TV show Cops? There was a camera operator who was shot. I while, did. Uh, excuse me, a sound recorder that right, was like shot. While, while following the, the guys in some, uh, yeah, yeah, I haven't, like I haven't heard much fast about food joint. Yeah, I, I haven't heard the specifics, but I heard about it. And, and you know, to me, I'm thinking, gosh, that show's been on for like 500 years. How is it possible that someone got hurt on it when no one's ever been hurt on it before. Yeah, that's so, my reaction too. This is the first time? Yeah, it's the first time. And you know, and that, and consequently, that's really great that it is the first time. It's just unfortunate that there was a first time. Um, so I, I, I always feel that, you know, safety is paramount. And, and if you're smart, you will never end up having to face a decision on whether to shoot if it's safe. If you've done your prep correctly, then, the, then you have negated those questions. And that, in fact, is the purpose of prep. Prep time is to be able to evaluate the film, to be able to get your budgets and schedules ready, to be able to get everything ready and discuss at nauseum everything that's important so that when you arrive on the day, you just let the day work itself out. show's been on for like 500 years. How is it possible that someone got hurt on it when no one's ever been hurt on it before? Yeah, that's my so, reaction too. This is the first time? Yeah, it's the first time. And, you know, and, that, and consequently, that's really great that it is the first time. It's just unfortunate that there was a first time. Um, so I, I, I always feel that, you know, safety is paramount. And, and if you're smart, you will never end up having to face a decision on whether to shoot if it's safe. If you've done your prep correctly, then, the, then you have negated those questions. And that, in fact, is the purpose of prep. Prep time is to be able to evaluate the film, to be able to get your budgets and schedules ready, to be able to get everything ready and discuss at nauseum everything that's important so that when you arrive on the day, you just let the day work itself out. How often do current events play into your logistical planning? Um, well, you know, I would say a lot of the time, well, all the time, basically current, current events, as opposed to, you mean like what's happening in the, in the world or in the business or just like what I read in the paper or. Well, when you go and you're starting to plan to go to some of these different places, mm. you know, maybe some of them aren't so friendly to American tourists right. these days, right. et cetera. Right. And like, we'll take Morocco, for example. So Morocco has been, you know, the King is very amenable to filming. He lends the air force. Um, I can't, I, the dozens of mo big movies have been made there other than, you know, sort of snippets of the Bourne trilogy and things like that. Um, so with the case of Morocco, 
you know, you have to weigh how many foreigners you're going to bring. You know, are you going to bring an army of four Europeans there? Um, or can you use local labor? And a lot of it actually has to do with talking to the government and talking to the production service company. And of course, when you talk to a production service company, they're going to say, oh, it's fine, everything's fine, because they want your business, and that's sort of expected. However, if you talk to the right production service company, uh, or if you actually dig in a little bit, you can get a real reading on, on what it's like. In fact, on uh, Around the World in 80 Days, um, we were shooting just as uh, the Gulf War, not the Gulf War, the second war was announced. That's when the SARS scare was, you know, back in the, in the mid-90s. And um, the area we were filming in, which was in Thailand, in Krabi and Phuket, you know, they were 80, 75% Muslim. And, you know, back then that was a concern. Because this had just happened. This whole war thing was, you know, kind of new. Um, so we were there and we made arrangements uh, with the government and we had a 727 aircraft on standby uh, in case things got uh, difficult. Uh, we were assigned certain elements of the army to protect the set and things like that. Um, and you sort of just kind of have to figure it out as you go, but it's a very good question. And a lot of times that's discussed way before we get to actually making a phone call to somewhere like, you know, that, that is the pre, a pre-production discussion when you're figuring out where to go. If someone screams, CC fly, grab the camera and head to the plane. We got <laughs> exactly. and, get, yeah, and, get, and get your malaria <laughs> shot and, and off you go. The reason why this question came about was, uh, watching the documentary for apocalypse now, mm. you know, they had major problems working oh, with the course. government to get the helicopters they of needed, course. things like that, which is what brought this question Yeah, it, no, I, and it's true because, it, well, I also think, you know, Apocalypse Now being the groundbreaking piece of work that it was broke ground in a lot of different things. One was actually taking a Hollywood movie to a foreign country in its totality with aircraft, with boats, with explosions, with gunfire. You know, that was probably one of the first major films ever to do that type of work out of the country. And so all of the challenges they experienced were le are lessons for us today in knowing exactly what to look out for and what to ask. And that's why it's so important that you try to learn something from the movie that you're working on, or at least try to be up uh, with the current events of the business. And a lot of the counseling I give my students and in my seminar is to use all the free resources available. You sign up for Deadline, you sign up for The Hollywood Reporter, and then they show up in your inbox. Then at your leisure, you can look at them or delete them, but at least you are part of what's going on. And I, I think that that really is the most important thing, is, is to try to be as much uh, informed about your part of the industry as you can. But current events play a big part. So, you know, let's say you wanted to shoot in the South now after what happened a few weeks ago. You would be thinking about that. Sure, you're right? talking about Ferguson? Absolutely. You would be thinking, okay, well, does my movie need police? And, you know, is, you do, do my, what is my movie about? Do, hey, I, do I need protesters? Am I a Civil War movie? Am I, am I a reenactment movie? Or am I a present-day movie? All of oh, by those. By the way, yeah. I was just there. So if you need really? some private consulting on really? Ferguson, Missouri. Were you, were you just there? I, well, I, yeah, I was, wow. I was just there, yeah. How, when? Yeah, tell I was, me. I, I, was, uh, I was there about a week and a half oh, ago. Oh, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, sure. No, that's cool. I, I mean, and, and that's the other thing, he too. He went to Kiev where the Russians were encircling it. They, this is, they send him to these places. Really? Yeah. Oh, we got to have a talk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that, that's very cool. I mean, I love to travel, and I, and, I, and I like to be an educated traveler. And one of the things that I try to pride myself on and the companies that I'm involved with is that, um, you know, you have to be very culturally aware when you go somewhere. And you desperately do not want to be that loud American in the plaid shirt. And so, um, although I rely on the crew members to use their best judgment when doing that, 
what I like to do is before we travel out of the country, I'll create like a three or four page memo. I'll explain the cultural rules. I'll explain the do's and don'ts. Um, you know, very interesting. The two things I always say about Thailand is that you're never supposed to show the soles of your shoes or your feet to someone. So you really can't sit uh, cross-legged like you would be used to in America. The other thing too is that you it's inappropriate to pat somebody on the head. So you're in a big group of people and you see some cute kids and they're kind of pawing at you and you pat them on the head. That's very disrespectful. So there are some things like that. How would you know? Well, you don't. So the exactly. job of the management, the job of the company is to educate the people that are going to be in their charge yeah. out of the country. I was in Amsterdam about a month after 9 11. Mm. That was the first time I ever received a security memo. You know, no baseball caps, right. flat colors, do not have anything that says Adidas or anything Nike or anything Absolutely. American on it. Flat, blend in and try to get out without any incident and just that, do your job. That's right. And, and, you know, that goes with not just people's attitude, but it goes with, um, uh, not just their work attitude, but their personal attitude. I mean, it's, it's, it's a much bigger deal than people think. However, once you explain it to them and when they get it, it becomes not a big deal. But so it's like a bell, a very sharp bell curve. Once, once you, once you go very steep, you're flat for quite a while. So what I like to think is that it's, it's the movie's job to sort of educate its crew and its people on what to do and don't. And then you're, you're going to have a much better cultural experience regardless of the filming. Okay, so that's it for part one of Billy Badalotto Jr. Make sure to catch us for part two next time on Cinematic Community. We know you have a great many choices, and we're glad you chose us. Thanks, everybody.